you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 7. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1. After this, um, that is after the events which uh, many of Jesus' disciples were leaving him after what he had said the previous chapter. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near... Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Nate, am I really ringy back there? Therefore Jesus told him, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, because for me, the right time has not yet come. And I think the, the obvious the idea is, if he were to travel with a group of pilgrims all the way to Jerusalem, teaching and healing and gathering more disciples, you know, uh, probably what would happen is what they were they tried to do in the previous chapter, which is make him king by force. And he's saying, you know, that's not the right, it's not the right way and it's not the right time. Uh, my time is not in the, in the fall, but it's going to be in the spring. Um, and now what verse am I in? <laughs> Anyone want to help me? Nine, thank you. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret, Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said that he is a good man, and others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Let's skip ahead to verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast... Jesus stood up and he said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And on hearing these, these words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the, pro- the prophet, capital P. And others said, He is the Messiah, the Christ. And still others asked, Well, how can, the, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? And the, the guards declared, no one ever spoke the way this man does. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted, has, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the Torah, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked 
Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Take these words, O Holy Spirit, and plant them deep in our hearts that they might bear much fruit. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen. Well, yeah, I've had the plague all week, so <laughs> thus uh, the snuffles, and hopefully I won't have a coughing fit. Um, and I'm going to exit <laughs> the, the door right after the sermon because I don't want to infect anyone. Um, but let me start in maybe a strange place by having you consider a scene from a sitcom. The camera is on two adult brothers who are facing each other. Uh, they're in what seems to be a conference room. A very tense conversation is taking place. I mean, both are relatively flushed in their face. They've been fighting, um, arguing, maybe yelling. When the door behind one of the brothers opens and their mother walks in. And she begins to just lay into these guys about how they've been treating each other. uh, About how they're discrediting the family name and, and how they are, and she starts to cry, how they're breaking her heart. Well, the brothers are visibly shaken by all of this. Um, you know, one of them you know, stammers out how sorry he is, how, uh, how his brother is welcome to come and live with him in the summer. The other brother is having financial difficulties. The other brother is moved by this, and, and tears are welling up in his eyes. And, and then the mother, as, as uh, emotional music plays in the background, the mother moves forward and kisses each of uh, her sons on the cheek and explains how she too had a very fractured um, relationship with her siblings, but it was eventually mended. All right. Now through the entire sequence, the shot is filmed in tight. All you see are the three family members. But at that point, the camera starts to slowly pan out further and further to reveal that there are a room full of employees also sitting around the conference table, awkwardly watching the entire scene happen. And finally, one of them, I said it's a sitcom, one of them um, raises his voice and says, "Um, can we go now? (laughs) And and everybody, you know, runs for the doors. They're just mortified, absolutely mortified by by what they've watched. Okay, it's comedy. Uh, And it's it's a fairly familiar comedic trope, the, the joke is in the framing, isn't it? The joke is in the frame. When you think about a frame, I'm going to do quite a bit with frames today. You think a frame, essentially what a frame does is it tells us what is being considered and what is not being considered. What is being considered and what is not being considered. For example, when you walk into a movie theater, that giant screen is essentially a giant frame. Uh, it, and it, the frame is what, what is being considered. It's, it's the frame that makes a scary movie scary, isn't it? Right? If it's, it's because M. Night Shyamalan controls, this is all that I'm allowed to see. This like creepy vantage point. Um, I often, I'm not a big scary movie fan, but I often think when I'm watching one, that if, if I just could see more than what you're allowing me to see, like if I had the ability to do a 360 turn around and look over my shoulder and see what might be creeping up behind me, or if I could just see more of the room, then the movie wouldn't be nearly as scary, would it? But they don't give you that option because they control the frame. 
And then likewise, uh, part of the frame, if we would expand a little further, part of the frame is the music, isn't it? If you try watching a scary movie on mute, you discover, man, it's not all that scary after all. But if all I'm hearing is that throbbing, you know, scary, you know, you get the whole point. Um, A frame borders a vantage point and determines what is being considered and what is not, okay? Well, within Christian academic circles, uh, if we were to pick like the book that arguably has had was the most influential that was written in the last 10 years. Uh, a, a good case could be made for a book. It was actually one that Shelton um, talked to us about, about a, I don't know, a month or so ago. Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. A 900-page tome, super dense. Uh, Taylor is a Canadian philosopher, and he does a deep, deep, deep dive into why ours is a secular age. Why, why is it that... How did America and Europe get to the point that today the majority of people um, are just purely secular? They don't think about faith. They don't think about religion. They don't really think a whole lot about God or supernatural. Another way to put it is how do we get to the point that this is our collective frame? And so he goes on to describe this frame as the eminent frame. This frame Uh, only allows to be considered the physical, the natural, the scientific, and the, like, ethical situational. And this frame screens out the spiritual, the supernatural, the religious, and ethical ultimates. As I said, he calls it the eminent frame as is in contrast to the transcendent frame. Um, And, you know, it says a whole lot more (laughs) in that book, but but it's really, it's a, it's a fascinating way to think about things. You step back, framing itself is, is a fairly powerful tool uh, for you to kind of consider, how am I taking in the world? How do I, I do life? And here are at least two curious features of frames I want to mention before we jump into our text. Number one, frames don't necessarily deny that there are other things outside of them. They don't necessarily deny that there are other things outside of them. So in the case of the sitcom, it's not as though the producer made a promise to us that there were only three people in the conference room. He didn't say that. He didn't lie to us in making that promise. It's just that we, from that vantage point, we just never consider that there might be more. Uh, Because you you just kind of unconsciously go along with well, you know, your frame. Um, and I think, in, and so in a similar kind of way, if you were to talk to the majority of Europeans and Americans, it's not as though they're like super hostile or completely deny the presence of God or religion or spiritual or supernatural. It's just most people, they, they're like, I just don't think about it. I really don't, like God, it's almost like, who needs him? I really don't even think about it. Um, I don't think about the afterlife. I'm not, I'm not sitting around, walking around, thinking, am I going to heaven? Am I going to hell? I mean, it's just not, I don't even consider it because it's outside my frame. Um, and then secondly, and this is maybe the more important part, frames can be adjusted. Frames can be resized. Frames can be narrowed, truncated. You know, think, however, frames can be adjusted Insofar as you are conscious of what you're at present framing, 
You're conscious of what your frame is. And so in that regard, framing is a very powerful tool for considering life and asking myself what is coming through my vantage point. I'll give another example um, of this. A common example, antidepressants. A bunch of us take antidepressants. Um, The point of taking an antidepressant, it's not to make you happy. The, The drug doesn't make you it doesn't make you happy, but what it does is if for a person who recognizes that there is no light, there's no sunlight coming through my frame. It's almost like there's a sunscreen outside my window, and, and this, this frame, it's like a macular degeneration. It's so dark. And so you take an antidepressant um, you know, with the hopes that you're going to at least remove some of that gray filter that's across it. Um, likewise, some of us take anti, anti-anxiety medication. I mean, what, what you, you do, do that when you recognize that this frame of mine is constantly going like this. It's trembling. I am so afraid. It is shaking. And, and you know, it's very hard to focus on anything if your vantage point is like in the middle of an earthquake all the time, right? So you take, you take some medicine in order to, again, fix, you fix that frame. That's a very lengthy introduction into what I would really like to consider from John chapter 7. That God, looking at some of the ways God is trying to reframe things for us, his people. So we're going to look at the original frame of of, um, uh, tabernacles. And then we're going to look at Jesus' frame. First, let me get a drink. The context of John chapter 7 is the Jewish festival of tabernacles, also called the festival of booths, um, also called the festival of Sukkah. My Hebrew is bad, so it's something like that. (laughs) Um, And it was one of the three annual pilgrimages that a Jewish male of a certain age was required to take every year up to the city of Jerusalem, the others being Passover and Pentecost. Um, Every Jewish male was required to go. Oftentimes, they would take their entire family. We read from Josephus, a first century historian, that in the days of Jesus, the festival of tabernacles was actually the most popular of the annual feasts. I mean, the people absolutely love it. And Josephus says that literally hundreds of thousands of, hundreds of thousands would come to Jerusalem and they would set up these, well, where the festival gets its name, uh, tabernacles or booths. These little makeshift temporary shelters, like makeshift um, tents, essentially, uh, booths. Writes one scholar, the booths were most likely made of branches of olive, branches, wild, wild olive um, branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and other leafy trees. The people who lived in Jerusalem probably built the booths on the roofs of their houses, well, pilgrims built them outside the walls of the city. I mean, so it, it, you look at Jerusalem and you look outside of Jerusalem and it, I mean, it probably looked a little like Woodstock. I mean, you've got, without the flower children. <laughs> but, you know, just the hillsides are covered with, with these, um, these booths. And uh, according to Josephus, the festival was observed with special care. Uh, and most of the families built booths. One may imagine that children were especially enthusiastic in gathering branches and tying them together to make these simple structures. The festival is also known by another name. 
It is the Feast of Ingathering, and that is because it coincided with the fall harvest. Now, the reason this might be important, if we remember that theirs was a national agrarian economy, and with every vocation, there's a certain rhythm to our lives. So April the 16th, if you're a CPA, April 16th is like the best day of the, of the year for you, right? April 16th for the rest of us, at least for me, is like another day on the, on the, um, on the calendar. It's, it's not a big deal. Uh, May the, we'll call it May the 25th. If you're a teacher, May the 25th is a day to seriously celebrate. But if you're single without children and you're not in school anymore, May the 25th is, you know, it's, it's pretty ho-hum. But what happens when pretty much everybody in an entire society works the same job or jobs related to that job, i.e. you're a farmer? Um, what happens when the day comes that all of the harvest is drawn in and the barn doors are shut and you can set down your tool belt and, and wash your hands and say, this is just done. And the whole country basically says, it's done. Whew, let's party. <laughs> and that was essentially the, the Feast of Ingathering. So do you see what's going on here? Um, by making them go and build a tent after, you know, after this momentous time in the nation's life, I mean, God is clearly, like, through their bodies, trying to change their frames. Um, we feel this, don't we feel this when we go camping? And we, there's something about sleeping out under the stars up north, right? You do that, and I don't know exactly how we take in reality differently, but it, it does feel like God is pushing our frame and, like, expanding it just a little bit. We likewise feel that, I think, if you take a trip, um, you've, you, you're on a vacation, or you've just been in town for a long time, but then you've got to take a trip. And going to a new place has a way of re- refreshing our frames. So what, what would God be trying to reframe for them or teach them? A Jewish rabbi writes um, this. He says, this is very profound. In the autumn of the year, after the harvest has been gathered, When a man's thoughts tend to focus on the rich profits he has garnered and his dreams of acquiring mansions and estates, uh, the Torah tells the Jew to build a sachach, to exchange his solid home for a frail makeshift dwelling. This sachach is a reminder of the huts in which God made the children of Israel live during their 40-year journey through the wilderness and of the cloud of glory that protected them on their wanderings. A Jew sits in the sachach, I mean, he sits on a, a dirt floor. He, he looks at walls made of palm branches. Uh, he, he sleeps under the shelter of the bows, surrounded by his family and friends. And he cannot help but feel God's sheltering hand enveloping him. Uh, maybe his spirit soars as he realizes that material possessions, these, they offer me no security. That only the shield of faith is the protection that I can truly rely upon. But isn't it just, isn't it fascinating that there are things that we can do with these things, with our bodies, with our materiality that can profoundly affect the way that we take in, um, uh, you know, spiritual truths. That's what's being taught here. Uh, I mean, I would suggest to you that 
that a regular practice of fasting is actually one of those things that Jesus commends to us. And there's so many more, but um, I think it is, it was, it is fascinating to consider um, what reality they would take in differently by virtue of uh, camping with the entire family. <laughs> so, but that was not the, that's the, uh, kind of the original framing. That's not the only part of the festival, though, of significance. Down through the years, other traditions um, began to be associated with the Festival of Tabernacles. These included an elaborate lamp lighting ceremony, um, a, a huge like, barnyard dance by torchlight in the evenings, and most importantly for our passage, an elaborate priestly water-pouring rite. So on the last day of the feasts, one of the priests, it might have been the high priest, I can't remember which, but a priest takes a golden pitcher and he goes to the pool of Siloam there in the city of Jerusalem. He dips it into the pool of Siloam and then carries that pitcher of water back into the temple courts. And all the other priests and the people are following him in this grand procession through the city. And there then in the temple courts around the um, altar of burnt, uh, burnt offerings, they, he circles the altar a few times and he pours out at the base of the altar wine, which was the morning drink offering, and that water. And so if you can just kind of imagine it, I mean, the whole city is, is in an uproar. I mean, they've got the ram's horn, the shofar, is blowing, and they have everybody singing the halal psalms, hallelujah, praise the Lord, and everybody's dancing, they're processing, it's, I mean, it's, and as he's going around the altar, it's purported that the people would start yelling, pour out, pour out, pour out, as a way of... Um, you know, speaking to God's pouring out water upon a, a very thirsty, dry place, arid climate that they live in. And you notice that John is at pains to tell us that it's at that very moment, that moment, that Jesus destroys their frame. <laughs> He's, he, he doesn't just say it. I mean, he, he shouts it. He, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. And you can just imagine, I mean, does he pause at that moment? <laughs> Every eye is on him, just bewildered. The only other place in the prophets where anything like this happens is Isaiah 55, where Isaiah says, the Lord says, come to me, and come and buy and eat and drink. And Jesus says, no, you come to me. <laughs> and then he continues. If anyone is, uh, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And with those, with that sound, he is utterly changing their frame. You know, I really wish that we one day could take a, a full trip as a church to Israel and just tour uh, the place. Probably more realistically is for us to just like, have a summer camping um, trip. Of I, I've for a number of years, I've really hoped that we could do like a summer a summer camp thing because I think it would be it would be really great for um, for all of us. But if we were to go to Israel. Uh, and stand in the hills above the Dead Sea. 
I'm told that you can see an ancient aqueduct that the group of Jews in the Qumran community, um, they carved out of the side of the hill so that on those rare occasions when a freak storm brought cascading you know, living water down the normally dry stream beds, some at least of that could be diverted via the aqueduct and then it gets deposited in these huge cisterns in the ground um, that they, uh, you know, storage tanks. Um, and it's deposited there for the long, dry weeks and months ahead. And we would see just in a, in a, profound, a profound way how life, life in the desert is just all tied to water. <laughs> it really is. You know, if, you're, if a town or a tribe has a good water supply, from a stream or from a, a well, it can thrive. And if you don't have the water, it, you die. It's just, you, you, you die. And so as the priest is going around that altar, um, and he's, they're crying, pour out. And he pours out wine, and he pours out water as a sign of God pouring out his water. The reason it's really important is because you get to the end of the Gospel of John, as Jesus is hanging on the cross... In order to make sure that he was fully dead, one of the Roman soldiers shoves a spear into his side. And what comes out of his side? Blood and water. And it's like, boom! This is foreshadowing. This is foreshadowing the ultimate fulfillment on the cross. Where the blood and the water, the the wine and the clear, refreshing stuff, they flow. I mean, he's, it's, it's, it's tapping into the Old Testament. You strike the rock and uh, the water comes to the people and it's doing all of that. So it's such a, it is such an amazing, amazing moment. Um, and I want you to see what's going on here. So Jesus promises that those who are, are truly thirsty can drink from him. And drink is, is obviously a metaphor for believe. And those who drink believe from him not only have their thirst satisfied, but he says they themselves become streams of refreshing living water as the scriptures declare. Now that last little phrase, as the scriptures declare, that is really key because where in the world, where in the Old Testament does it declare that this is going to happen? I mean, you can search over and over, and you're going to be hard-pressed to find, where in the, where in the world does this happen? And probably the, the, the best and only place that you can get this is you've got to go to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 is this grand image that is given to the prophet Ezekiel of the city of Jerusalem being wonderfully rebuilt after the exile and the temple being magnificently rebuilt from the exile. Um, And as great as that is, that is not the key point because what happens in in Ezekiel 47? Ezekiel notices that all of a sudden this river starts to flow out from underneath the threshold of the temple away from the city and it flows where? flows south. (laughs) And as it's flowing, he actually pulls out a measuring stick to see uh, how big it is. And as it flows, it does the exact opposite of what you expect a a stream in the desert to do. He steps in, and it's at this height. And then he goes a little further down, and it's at this height. Then he goes a little further down, it's at at this height. And then he goes a little further down, and it's over his head. He can't even stand in the water anymore. It's a stream that gets deeper and deeper and deeper. The longer it flows until it's finally deposited, where? In the Dead Sea. (laughs) In the Dead Sea, where it says 
that it makes the Dead Sea fresh. And, uh, and people, it says people actually begin, fish start to live in the Dead Sea. And people start to fish in the Dead Sea. And fruit trees start to grow up around the Dead Sea because the stream has flown for the temple there. And so I've got to be thinking, that, like here he's saying this is now fulfilled, not so much in a temple, but in you. In you. In like individual Christian lives. Who says the Bible doesn't care about the individual? It says it flows out of your innermost, the word he uses is belly, but it, it really just, it refers to like the innermost part of you, your, your heart and your soul. I love that picture. Amen. I really, what a picture. Incidentally, a very similar picture is used at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22 as, as part of the description of the new Jerusalem. But Jesus is in this sentence suggesting that instead of a new city and temple, the promises will be fulfilled in you, Christians, um, who become streams of spirit to bless the land. So cool. So to, to summarize and because I ran out of brain power this week when writing the sermon. Uh, Jesus plants this inside your soul. He, he calls it a spring or, or a stream, which means a lot of things. But one thing it means is that, it, you know, it can't be taken from you. It can't be stolen from you. It's planted inside of you. Uh, it, it cannot be stopped. It it is, it is yours for your refreshment. And then secondly, it bubbles out from you. It's such a reversal of the way the Bible has always speaks. I mean, what normally bubbles out of the heart or the bellies of humans in the Bible, right? It's corruption. It's defilement. It's sin. That's what's always bubbling up out of us. No, no, but now, because of the Spirit purifying waters... Life-giving waters flow. Which leads to the third and key question. Is that what you see in your frame? Do you see? Is, are there waters going out of your frame to refresh the world? And is that your picture of, of our church, of the church, as a family of springs that is running out from us to the world. In conclusion, there's a story in Genesis chapter 26 where Isaac is digging new wells in the land of Canaan. Um, he's digging new wells and he's also unclogging some of the old wells that his father Abraham had dug long ago. One day he's digging long and he, he hits a spring that's um, such a valuable, such a valuable source of water. And the neighboring shepherds see it, and they come along and they say, Aha, it's ours. It's ours. And Isaac names that, that well Isak, which means quarreling. And then he digs another well. And again, the shepherds come along, and they quarrel over it. And so he names the second well Sitna, which means accusation. And then he digs a third well. And there's no fighting over this one. And so he names it, anybody remember? Probably not. 
Rehoboth. Rehoboth, which means broad places, because God has given him a source of life to spread out over the land into the broad places. And friends, that's what Christ has given you. He, he has given you a Rehoboth, a source of life to spread out over this city and this world. Amen.